Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome listeners to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Last time we went over the problem of evil, and we discovered that for the traditional Christian, which holds a classical view of God, the problem of evil turns out to be quite an actual problem that may either lead to belief in a not-all-powerful God, or a malevolent God, or the fact maybe that there is no God, if you believe in that kind of God. Next, what we're going to move into are options that Mormons may have for their theodicies, which again is just kind of like justifying God's allowing evil, or why God would allow some evil into the world. First, we need to clarify something that is important, which is God's relation to the natural universe, or in Mormon ideas, that would be God's relation to whatever is the most basic constituents of reality, which could be, you know, we we would call chaos. But first, we're going to review what God's relation to those natural regularities is in the tradition. But to start off, you just point out why this is important. You say, a religious tradition is most satisfying and valuable when it provides a revelatory framework for making sense of and giving meaning to our experience of the various types of evils that confront us. Any religion that leaves us clueless as to God's goodness in light of our actual experience of the world, or that fails to provide an optic to see God's loving hand in the world's events, fails in its task as religion. So, when you're just kind of laying the burden there, is you know, that's what religion should provide to people. It should provide them with this idea or some sense of why the world is the way that it is. That's kind of the, the whole point of religion. And I guess you're kind of taking a stab at some people that say, back to skeptical theism, I guess, like, well, we can't, you know, God's such a mystery. I guess we can't really explain his ways, but we'll, we'll worship him anyway. We just don't know anything about him, and anything that he does is just unknowable. Having said that, we're going to now move into this first section here, which is God's relation to natural regularities in the tradition. So this is just kind of a very brief overview of how different views on how God relates to the natural universe. These are different views of God's providence and how God's providence relates to his action in the universe. Let me just kind of make a distinction because what we're going to be discussing, and we'll get to this later, but we've got to start off with this right now. What we're going to be doing is focusing on on three moments of possibilities of God's relation to the natural universe in Mormon thought. A view of God before the universe, that is, that God exists before the universe, and all of the order in the universe is the result of his creative activity. A view of God with the universe, which is essentially a process view of God, where God is imminent in the universe and arises in part from the fact that the universe exists and they mutually sustain each other. And then after the universe view, where God becomes God in an existing universe with existing natural laws that are not the result of his divine action. To begin the discussion, we are going to focus on God's relation to the natural universe and look at what does it mean to talk about a natural universe and and natural regularities, usually called laws of nature. First, we're going to look at, at this relationship within the various views within traditional Christianity and what those relations for God's providence portend, and then specify, at least in this discussion, more clearly the view of God that is after the universe in Mormon thought and what that entails. All right, and then you start off here, you say, by natural law, I mean merely a constant regularity of the type, this is an example, water always freezes when it is 32 degrees Fahrenheit, or the speed of light is, you know, C is an E equals MC squared, that constant speed. So natural laws can be the descriptions of these regularities or explanations for why they obtain. And there are numerous theories of what natural laws are and how they are best conceived. But for now, to avoid going too far afield in such important issues, you say I will leave the discussion with the simple notion of consistent regularities that in fact obtain in the world about us. It is indisputable that there are such natural regularities for, in the tradition, God establishes and sustains these regularities and can suspend them at any time. I guess we'll just start off here with that brief definition of 
what it means for those in the total divine control traditions. And these are traditions such as Calvinism. Well, you've got two different ways of looking at it. For instance, in Calvinism, God's will is actually the basis for what occurs. And so if something occurs in the universe, it's because God willed it to be that way. In Thomism, God is a proximate cause of everything that occurs. That is, without God's concurring will with anything that occurs, nothing would occur. In Molinism, we have what we call the meticulous providence view, because even though what free agents do in a given universe is dependent on the free acts of those agents, presumably the natural laws that exist are not independent of God in any way. He determines totally what those natural laws are, chooses the natural world in which those natural laws will work out the way that they do because God has determined what those natural laws will be. So remember, we're not dealing with the issue of of human freedom here. We're dealing with the notion of what happens as a matter of what we can call natural necessity. When something happens of natural necessity, usually when we're talking about Aquinas or we're talking about de Molina or, or Francisco Suarez, We're talking about people who accepted a broadly Aristotelian view of natural law, and it is this. Remember, we talked about the agent-cause view of natural law way back in the first volume when we talked about the fact that if there is creation ex nihilo, then there's no free will. And this is the view that there is a relationship between an actor and a patient, but the kind of things that can be brought about through natural laws depend on the natural properties of the patient. So, let's give an example. We've done this before, but so you have two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. It happens to be the case that they have an electronic covalence that when they get together, it is the natural propensity of the electrons to bond in a way that will create a molecular bond. And so it is the power of one acting on the other to create this kind of relationship. And it happens a matter of natural necessity because of the properties of the electrons. It's not based upon a causation where where one thing just happens to hit another like a billiard ball. When one thing acts upon another, it actuates the properties that are already inherent in the patient acted upon. So when one electron's magnetic field interacts with the electronic field of another electron, you know, we'd have to get in quantum physics to fully explain it, but the bottom line is is that they join in a, a type of molecular unity because of the electromagnetism and basically the electric values of the electrons came, the electromagnetic power or the electromagnetic force which binds them. And so we're talking about this Aristotelian view of natural law, which was accepted by virtually all of the scholastics. We're talking about scholastics from Thomas Aquinas all, all the way through to the latest in the scholastic era. Before Aristotle was rediscovered, and remember he's rediscovered quite late, brought to the continent basically by the Muslims when they come bringing the Aristotelian writings. And so this Aristotelian view is not the view of earlier Christianity. What they have is a platonic view of natural law. But we're going to be departing more from the discussion based upon the Aristotelian view. So. That's just a broad overview of what we're talking about when we talk about a natural regularity. Another way to put this is when water is heated to 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level, it boils because of the natural properties of the molecules of water that are, you know, they're acted upon by the heat. And so what we're talking about is this is just the way things happen. It's the natural law in the universe. That when these conditions obtain, this is the result that occurs given the kinds of substances that we have present. We're talking about things that will happen of what we may call a natural necessity. But we have to remember that those natural necessity, what those laws are, are totally dependent on what God does if he creates out of nothing. In this section, you just briefly overview the different views in Christianity. So, like I said, there is the total divine control when you just say basically God just like it says, totally controls what humans, in quotes, freely choose and every natural thing that there is. And then there's the meticulous providence view, which is like uh, Molinism we talked about, where God may be limited by what he can see, kind of like what the fates would choose or the way that the universe is going to be is already determined and God can't necessarily choose specifically what he would want. But he can still choose which world to actuate, even though he can't choose exactly the way it's going to be. 
So even in that view, though, you say that God still has unfettered control over the natural regularities that obtain and which God can suspend or revoke at any time. So that's kind of the more traditional classical view of God's power and relation to the universe is that he totally and completely controls it and created it from nothing. And we'll get into the implications of creation ex nihilo more in a minute. But just a brief overview of two other positions are open theists, which is an emerging view and one that informed your view in the first volume where I guess the main thing about open theism is they say that God is in time and he can't know infallibly what the future is going to be and so the future is open. That's why that's where they get the term open. So if creatures are really free then they will act and God doesn't know exactly what they will do so it's open. But even in open theism they believe God could in this view, or at least with the position that the majority take, is that God is more self-limiting, meaning he has the power and at any time could come in and suspend the natural laws if he saw fit, and he could override free human decisions and get rid of evil at any time if he, if he so chose, but for some reason he is self-limiting, but he still has the power. So I guess we need to keep this in mind. What we're, we're talking about these, just keep in the back of your mind what this means for the problem of evil. So still maintains that God could totally at any time come in and wipe out any of this human evil on these views. And then the last one you give a brief overview of is process thought. And we'll go into a Mormon process thought in subsequent podcasts. But what you say here is just that in this view, as far as a basic overview goes, God's power here is God does not and cannot bring about any state of affairs unilaterally. And on this view, since he can't bring anything about unilaterally, he does not create ex nihilo, and God governs the world by his what's called initial aim, which we'll get into more, but the main point I want to get at is that his power is described as persuasive power, meaning he can only coax or persuade whatever matter is or, you know, the constituents of reality and being. He can only give them his thoughts and intentions and persuasion and but it's up to those realities whether or not they actually do obtain or not. And that's why, you know, maybe it takes billions of years to, to create an Earth, just because that's how long it takes for them to get with it. So before we move on to examining more of the implications of creation ex nihilo and what that means for the natural laws and the problem of evil in these views, anything else you want to say about that section? Not really. I think that the very simple idea is that in process thought, what the natural laws are, they are what they are, and God has to rely upon them to lure out of what is possible within the natural universe to achieve his will. For open theists, however, they're in the same boat as everyone else God creates out of nothing, and so the natural laws that exist are totally dependent on what God decides they will be, and they can be anything that it's logically possible for God to bring about. And because he's not limited by free will, it's pretty well free, open fiat and discretion on his part. Moving on to here, uh, this section you titled Prospects of a Natural Law Theodicy of the Tradition of Creation Ex Nihilo. You kind of got into this a minute ago, but now we're going to kind of take a look at what is natural law and what is it and then how is it related to creation ex nihilo. So you define it say natural law, like regularities, are important to the ability of persons to make choices with predictable outcomes and consequences for their actions. Such regularities seem to be an essential feature of any world that could support beings who are morally responsible for what they do. And you have a couple of examples, uh, if you want to go into a couple of those, I guess. The regularity of natural laws is essential to the exercise of free will in any kind of universe in which soul building or the kind of learning that is essential to growing as individuals could take place. So we've had the example in the past where if we lived in an indeterministic universe where really things weren't controlled by law, you could be sitting next to your friend and your arm would just fly out at random and hit him in the nose. It was just happening at random like that and you have no control over it. Obviously, you're not responsible for it. So there couldn't be the kind of free will for which we have moral accountability if there were no natural regularities. And so the importance of a natural law theodicy is precisely to say, look, what we're explaining here is why, given the fact of free will, it's necessary that we have a law-like natural universe. And it would have to be the kind of law-like universe where, for instance, steel has certain properties. 
And it can't be the case that when we're cutting butter with knives, the steel is, is hard and can pierce through things. But when we poke a person with the same knife, it just turns into silly putty at random intervals. It has to be the kind of natural regularity where we know and can, and can determine what our acts will portend and be able to expect the results of what we do. We have to be able to anticipate that our actions will have certain regularities in response. For instance, we know every single time that we call somebody a jerk, that the air will function in our vocal cords, and that the words will come out of our mouth. This is very basic stuff. The bottom line is, or if we say we love somebody, you know, I mean, you could probably tell them with your eyes, but there have to be natural regularities for us to be able to function and, and for life to take place at all. And to have the kind of universe where persons can grow, it has to be one where natural laws have a regularity. And for instance, where water doesn't merely give life because it is life-sustaining, it also drowns because it has the properties that it does. So what we're looking at in a natural law theodicy is to say as an extension of a free will defense, there's also a certain kind of world that is necessary when we're looking at the existence of free will. And so it's open to a theist to argue, look, the natural laws that we have, I mean, it's not the case only that water sustains life, it, it can also drown. It's not the case only that we have rain, we have storm systems, and those storm systems can turn into tornadoes and hurricanes that may kill. This is a part of what it is to live in a world that has natural laws. And then you list out a couple of constants that seem necessary for life to exist, at least as we know it. And you say the constants are A, the ratio of strength of the electrical forces to the force of gravity. B, the fraction of the mass of hydrogen that is converted to energy in the process of hydrogen fusion. C, the ratio of density of matter in the universe and the density that would lead to a flat universe, meaning it has to be the right balance, otherwise it would have a flat universe. D, the cosmological constant which balances gravity and caused the expansion of the universe to accelerate for an inflationary period. E, a measure of irregularities of the otherwise uniform early universe, and F, the number of spatial dimensions of our universe. So these seem like, wow, you know, these definitely are... We look back at how the universe formed and the way that it functions, and yeah, these seem essential to the universe as we know it. So here's the caveat that you kind of point out here. So that's the universe as we know it. But the problem is, we only know it that way because it happens that, at least on this view, God chose to create it exactly that way. But there is no reason that God couldn't have had any natural laws that he would want and then if we, in some form, still existed in that universe, you know, we would look back and say, well, these are the essential natural laws because that happens to be the way they are. And so pointing out these things as essential, at least on this view, doesn't really work for anyone who supports creation ex nihilo because, really, God could have made it any way he wanted. Yeah, I don't see any reason why we couldn't have, for instance, weather systems that don't devolve into hurricanes and tornadoes. I mean, we would never know the difference if the natural regularity were one that were interrupted every time by divine intervention. But we couldn't see the divine intervention. God could simply make it so that the storm systems don't evolve in such a way that they evolve into those kind of storms. Every time there's a mutation that would be harmful, God could intervene to make sure either that it doesn't get passed on to the next generation or he could change it so that there are no mutations of that sort. So. When you give God the kind of discretion and fettered access to monkeying with the natural laws in ways we can't determine, remember, natural regularity is just the way things actually occur on a regular basis. That's what we're looking at in terms of, of a law, and it can be based upon whatever properties we have. But if it were a fact that we had water that boiled, but that whenever skin touched it, there were a film that were formed so that it didn't burn us, that, that would also be a possibility, by the way. That's totally within the discretion of, of a God who creates ex nihilo. So this kind of an observation I don't think is very convincing within a tradition that accepts creation out of nothing because God has unfettered discretion in fashioning what the laws actually are. You know, we can point to these constants if we want, but the fact is that the, the way these constants devolve in actual, we don't have to have, even with the constants that I've identified, we don't have to have all of these bad features of a natural universe. All the same problems that we pointed out in your less evil options seem to befall any view that includes creation ex nihilo because God always had the ability to create better humans or better 
natural laws that didn't have any kind of volcanoes or, or tectonic plates. That's not essential. I mean, you even just look at the existing universe as we know it, and not every world has to have these. Maybe to have life it does, but only in this universe. Anyway, the point is, I'll just read what you put here. It says, given the problem of natural evil, on this view, the only viable option open to the tradition is that the Omni-God contrives these natural evils because he's basically ultimately responsible for choosing every natural evil that is possible to happen. Even if there is freedom on this view, the fact that we can do something and that it's allowed is only because God made it that way. And that the only possible view out of this is that the Omni-God contrives these natural evils to serve some higher purpose that we cannot fathom. So back to skeptical theism. And that's pretty much the only way out that they have. Yeah, I think that the only view that really works for a position that accepts creation out of out of nothing is the view of skeptical theism, which, you know, we've argued falls prey to the problem of moral quietude, where we have no rational reason to act morally because everything that happens is for the greatest good. Okay, and so given that, next we're going to move into the first of three Mormon theodicies, but it's also talking about how the Mormon view and getting rid of creation ex nihilo and having you know self-existing intelligences that are co-equal with God, how that affects God's relation to the universe and what limits that may place upon him. And if there are these limits, then what that means for what God is able to do providentially. The first view you call Mormon finitism. And this will arise as we get into this, but I think I have kind of a critique about the way that you take this particular section, but we'll get to that point when we get there. So I'm actually, if you're okay with it, I'm just going to read because it's basically a, not a story, but kind of you have to just read these to understand what this view entails, and then we'll talk about kind of the consequences and critiques of this view. Yeah, you've got to just kind of lay out the view so that people understand what it is, and then we can talk about it. All right, so you say, One prominent trajectory of Mormon thought maintains that God is dependent on a logically and temporally prior universe already characterized by natural regularities before God ever becomes fully divine. This trajectory is represented prominently by John Woodstow's A Rational Theology and many current Mormon scientists and engineers. I mean, this is me interjecting, so the way you take it is more along, like, scientists and engineers and the movement, I believe, currently called Mormon transhumanism would fall under this. But when I read over the story, it seems that you don't have to go that direction. Well, I'll talk about that in a second, but let me just read the view in general. And as I read this... A lot of Mormons will recognize this as a view that they do believe in already. So, on this view, you you say, we'll call God L, And that, you're not saying that's his actual name, but that's just what we're going to call him, just because he came to be God, and he had to be something else before that. So, on this view, L became fully divine at some first moment by learning to master the natural regularities that govern the universe and the laws of divine relationship, such as the law of love, of morality, etc., if L learned how to be fully divine by mastering the natural laws, then the natural laws exist prior to and independent of L's creative activity. It is not the case that the laws depend on L for their existence. Rather, L is dependent on the natural laws for his status as God. Uh, you know, you may recognize such things as, you know, in the Book of Mormon, where it's like, if God did certain things, then he would cease to be God. And that's kind of where you get that idea from. All right, then, given his trustworthiness and mastery of love, the Council of Gods assigned El a region of the local universe to organize and govern. In this region, El is supreme and the sole God who is revealed and, quote, the only God with whom we have to do, which you'll recognize from certain interpretations of the King Follett discourse, namely Brigham Young's interpretation that we have a kind of a local God and there's an infinite regress. Uh, we'll get into that more in a minute here. On this view, any individual exists of de re necessity, which means it's essential that they exist and that's just a given. It is the nature of any given individual to exist and it is physically impossible that such a being could not exist. However, it is not El's nature to exist as God, or in other words, as a fully divine being. Further, there have always been fully divine beings on this view. Much of the order that exists in the natural universe is due to the organizing influence of the always temporarily prior council of gods, or I guess I wrote in my own notes, I take issue maybe with the way you say that it's a council of gods, but 
the view does probably entail at least a, a regress of God's meaning. There was a God which had a world, and then there was a level, and then the, some inhabitant became gods that were the children of that God or something, and then so forth, just like in this great chain of gods. Anyway, you say, they have devised a plan to assist us to also become fully divine like them and through the same development process. It requires teaching us to master nature, and you say, as a scientist, which I also might take a little issue with, but you say, and learn to be morally good to such a degree that we can share everything that they have learned, just as the gods before them did. And just as the gods before us, we must learn from the moral and natural challenges that come our way to create a firm and virtuous character wholly committed to love and goodness. One of the purposes of mortal life, on this view, is to prove to God that we are worthy of the kind of ultimate trust implicit in sharing with us all the power and knowledge that he has. Indeed, it must be established very firmly that we will work cooperatively with God and each other for the good of all so that he can trust us with the fullness of his divine power. Sharing such knowledge with persons who are not proven to be trustworthy would entail a risk that is too great. And then, again, just some of the parameters here are the essence of every person's personal identity is uncreated and has always existed. The internal intelligences are essentially free and their choices are up to them, not God. So that's important there that it looks right, you know, on this view, God is limited at least by these other intelligences, and so he can't control their will at least. And then that was as far as I wanted to go before we talk about it. So just to back up a little bit, and I'll let you do this and it's fine, but like I said, I don't think that you have to go necessarily with the view of God's master of nature as a scientist. I know that's the way that John Whitso went and the Mormon transhumanist would want to go. But I was thinking about this, and the basic story here is one that's widely accepted by at least the Mormonism that I grew up with and that kind of was implicit. But I don't know, I kind of took God's, when, you know, the way that God became God is more of that God was exactly like we are, and since we have the potential to be gods, that's kind of just the cycle that keeps happening. But the mastery is basically that God had to become the kind of being that that is God, meaning, I guess I always thought kind of more, I don't know if mystical is the right word for the relationship, but rather than just a scientist who, you know, figures out how to manipulate things and then do experiments, I, I think it kind of is implicit on the view that there are a lot of things that we don't understand on how you can relate to the universe. And so maybe it's more like the force on Star Wars, where you seemingly have this relationship with nature in such a way that you can at will manipulate it, not just physically with your hands like a scientist would, or with chemicals, or with, you know, some technology, but just with some relationship that we don't understand now. That would be contrary to the kind of knowledge that's attributed to God on this view. Remember, he knows all that there is that can be known. And so instead of magic where, oh, I, you know, I have this weird power and I can lift this spaceship out of the muck on Dagobah, it turns out that this kind of a being would be fully aware of all of the natural laws and how they operate. And anything that he did to lift the ship out of the muck on the planet, he would fully understand exactly how that has to be done. And it has to be done through instrumental means because it's not the case that this being has power in and of himself to do these things. The powers that he has are the powers that are gained through mastering natural laws and therefore is merely instrumental. That is, God has to, whatever he does, he would have to do through other instruments because he's merely limited to a bodily existence and has only the natural powers of the body that a body can have and so what he's doing is mastering the way that things can be done scientifically through technology. That's definitely one of the ways you can take this view. I'm just saying that's not the only way that it can play out. Because I'm not saying that God doesn't fully understand what he's doing. I'm just saying there are, at least the way I've always understood the view, is that the relationship that God has with nature is such that he can, you know, it, it, I don't know exactly how you say it, but since he lives so in accordance with the laws, it's not that he knows them and therefore he can manipulate them, it's that he lives in accordance with them and somehow whatever nature is allows him to use his will to somehow manipulate it. I don't know, I, obviously I don't know and it's not spelled out and, and you know, maybe he's fully aware of what he's doing but I'm just saying it's, I don't know, I, I don't think it has to go this direction but like I said, 
you can definitely go this direction because it does need to be addressed because it is a prominent view. Well, let me just say this. So we talked about your view and it's a little bit different than this chain of gods. I don't think the chain of gods view or even a divine council being the ultimate necessarily leads to this instrumentalist view or a god that acts as solely a, a scientist or manipulator of the natural laws because he's born in the universe. But we are also born in the same way, or not born, but we you know, are going to become gods and we have not always been fully divine. And so I don't see why we couldn't say that some other being did that and then some other being could have done that before. It's, it's a viable view, but it doesn't necessarily entail that I can only do it through scientific means because A, there's this whole other realm of spiritual things, which are still matter, I'll grant you, but they're not limited. Why would someone adopt this view in Mormonism as naturalism, and what does that entail, I guess? It's consonant with a number of given beliefs in Mormonism. One is that everything that exists is some form of matter, and all matter is subject to natural law, that there are no real miracles in the sense that there's a realm of the supernatural, but that everything that occurs is subject to natural law. All things are governed when we talk about law and the doctrine of covenants. We say instead of just law, it's, it's governed by natural law. And miracles are, are miracles only to those who don't have a full understanding of natural law. If we had a full understanding of natural law, we'd have a full explanation. And the reason we call them miracles is simply that we don't have a full explanation given our mastery of natural law to date. It also arises, I think, in connection with a certain type of a reading, a reading that I have critiqued of the King Follett Discourse and the Sermon in the Grove, which makes God after the universe. That is, God learned how to be God because he was a student of the natural laws and of the moral laws that were taught to him by the gods who came before him. And there's this eternal chain of gods, one above another. And anywhere there's a father, he had a father. And anywhere there's a son, there had to be a father. And he had a father. And he had a father. And it's also consonant with what Brigham Young taught. Brigham Young taught this kind of a view. And so those are all reasons. And it may be, as far as I know, the majority point of view among um, what I'm going to call educated Mormons. People who are just coming into Mormonism will have more of a traditional point of view that is really less distinguishable from the evangelical or broadly Protestant point of view. Once they study these kind of sources that I've talked about, they come to conclude, oh, well, God is actually a being who hasn't always been God. He came to be God at some point by becoming mortal on another universe, and there were gods before him, and they're, in essence, have laid the foundation for him to learn how to become a god. And so this is kind of what I'm going to call Mormonism 2.0. So Mormonism 1.0, it's just kind of a warmed-over Protestantism view. Mormonism 2.0 is what I'm going to call Mormon naturalistic finitism, the view that God comes after the universe, he's subject to all of the natural laws, and his knowledge is, is more or less a technological knowledge. He learned and mastered the natural laws by studying them and learning them in the way that a student would. And so he may have all kinds of instruments and things that are way beyond what we've got to learn so that he's got a super calculator and access to everything that's on the Internet all at once so that all of his thoughts are informed immediately by all the information on the Internet and, in fact, all the information that anybody has. But it's still, in, in essence, the information that is available because it has been learned by someone and it can be passed on. They're also limited by the fact that there are other free beings and creatures in the universe that they inhabit that they can't fully control. And so we have all of these limitations, but we can play with this view because it's kind of the ultimate science fiction view. Let's imagine that the gods have all determined a way that they can have a hive mind. So there's a device that they can implant in their brains and it gives them access to every brain and not only in the universe, it allows them to make the universe a computer for them so that it, the universe just is the calculating machine for everything so that the maximum computing power possible is what they have access to. It's still the case that what they know will be limited to what's possible to know at the present, so it won't include knowledge of the future. It will still be the case that they are limited by whatever the natural laws dictate. It will still be the case that even though they know all that can be known, that there may be, if they only inhabit a small part of the universe, like some people who accept this view would say, there's a part of the universe that wasn't organized and you go out to it then there may be vast regions of the universe that are governed by different natural laws. We wouldn't know because you'd have to make that determination based upon some kind of an investigation. 
and they can't do the investigation. There may be laws that would dictate that what they're planning will ultimately be overthrown because that's just the way it's set up given the way the natural laws are and they can't change that. So on the view that we're looking at of necessity, these people who become gods are limited by the natural universe in which they exist. It can't be otherwise because of, the ne- of what is logically entailed in growing up in a universe that's not of their own making and where the beings that they're emulating you know, became gods before they did. But it may be that whatever one knows, the other knows, and they have this kind of unity of the hive mind because everything that's known by one is known by all. They know everybody, each other's thoughts. They have complete access. And uh, let's even go a further flight of fantasy into science fiction. Let's assume that they have been able to master the creation of antimatter and that they can create whatever quantity of antimatter they have at any given location in any given amount so that anything that's possible to accomplish through the expenditure of energy, they can accomplish by creating the perfect amount of antimatter in that particular region. So anything that can be done that is physically possible, they can accomplish because they are very bright people. They know everything that it can be known about the natural laws, and so they know how to do these kind of things because it's, it's physically possible that it be done. And so that's kind of the, I mean, it's a, it's a vast power, which to us may appear to be omnipotence, but it's far from the kind of power that, you know, we would say could save us from whatever the natural laws dictate. So I'd say, yeah, I mean, on any view, even with the way I was expressing a different way you could go, then, yeah, you're still subject to natural laws. And like you said, I'm giving what I was saying just because, you know, we're talking about this idea and, you know, you may be making revisions for a book. I'm just saying there may be other Mormon views in here that this isn't quite addressing. I know you can't address every single nuanced view, but I don't think this is the way that the mainstream in the pew Mormons think about the God's relation to the natural universe. I don't think it's as a scientist, but definitely limited in, like you said. So those those problems do still stand for this view. So I want to go over a few more of the problems that are on this view. So like you said, if they are subject to natural laws, then ultimately they the natural laws are the ultimate and these divine beings are just manipulators or kind of like they're either master scientists or kind of like master wizards. I don't know if, you know, you saw Doctor Strange or something. It's like, you know, we so understand these mystical laws of the universe that we can basically what would appear to us be magical. And like you may be very powerful within this magic, but the magic still limits you and they're still, you know, within this natural universe. Maybe magic's not the right word because you could probably create things out of nothing on that view, but, you know, kind of a naturalism, magical view, if you will. But it has a lot of problems, and so let's talk about some of the limitations of using natural means. So first off, let's talk about problem of evil things. Let's bring it back to some of your examples. So let's say we have Rachel Runyon, and she is about to be kidnapped or just got kidnapped. So what could the god on this view do about it? On this view, the reason that Rachel Runyon's death was not prevented is that God simply doesn't have the power and resources to prevent it. He's overwhelmed by everything else that's going on in the world. And the explanation for the existence of both natural and moral evils is that God is technologically overwhelmed and given the limitations on his power and knowledge, he just cannot stop these kinds of things from occurring. And so we have a complete explanation for all evils. And in fact, this view basically just dissolves the problem of evil. I mean, this is the greatest virtue of this particular view, is that God couldn't stop the death of Rachel Runyon for the same reason that we can't, even though God is so much more knowledge and powerful, and that is because he's just limited to the extent he can't make it otherwise. Okay, and then let's talk about a couple other problems for this view. Uh, We kind of talked about this also with God and time back in the first volume, but let's say on this view, God lives on the planet Kolob, whatever that is. Let's say it's at least as close as our nearest star, which is what, four point something light years away. So if you pray to this God, we would have to imagine if things are are natural, if you will, at least as far as we understand of science, nothing can travel faster than light. And so you're limited to at least the speed of light for your prayers to somehow reach this being. And then if it was 4.2 light years away, it would take 4.2 light years for your prayer to reach this being. And for that being to then respond would take another 4.2 
years before anything could even happen. So it seems that can't really be a, in any way providential or listening or hearing or doing anything about prayers on this view. Well, he, he, he could if he were close enough. But if he lived on Kolob, I mean, let's just take the closest star to us is Proxima Centauri, which is just a, a little over four light years away from us. So any prayer would have a round trip travel time of, of just over eight years. That's a long time to wait for an answer to a prayer, and it's probably way too long for what people think is really taking place in prayer. It's not really the kind of communication where we're going to rely on somebody. We pray, but we know that the mail has been delayed for eight years because it, you know to get a response just takes that kind of time. And so we're not going to pray for Rachel Runyon, for instance, to be found after she's disappeared. Because if we did, by the time she were found, she'd be 16 years of age. And, you know, if you're going to wait eight years to find a little girl, that's just way too long. If you're going to pray and it takes eight years to cure cancer, it's going to be way too late. This just seems like a huge problem to me. Why would you pray to a being who can't do any better than we can do on our own? I mean, the reason these evils occur on this view is that God is powerless to stop them. Even given all his knowledge and power, he really can't stop whatever occurs. And so what we're saying is, you know, maybe if we pray and God is available, let's take another flight of fantasy. Maybe God has worked out something that works through a wormhole or that is faster than light. Maybe it's what people once thought were like tachyons, faster than light particles. The theory of tachyons hasn't quite held up. Let's just assume for giggles and kicks that it's possible. Well, then we would be going way beyond what is scientifically justifiable so that the virtue that this would have, that it's naturalistic and actually scientifically respectable, and it is, because it's a real possibility in that regard, we throw that out the window. But what we're giving up in doing that is gaining the back the ability to explain that a reason why we would pray and rely on God. The problem is when we begin to say that, okay, God has both sufficient power and sufficient knowledge to stop the kinds of things that actually occur. We have the problem of evil again, and this explanation won't work because we can't explain why things occur based upon the fact that God just doesn't have enough power and knowledge to stop it. And so we're in kind of a bind with this kind of an explanation, it seems to me. And this problem that if we begin to monkey with what we know about the laws, you know, like the theory of relativity, and and we do away with the speed of light as an absolute upper limit, and it is for a very good reason. Anything that has mass, as it reached the speed of light, would turn into pure energy, and, and it couldn't possibly go faster than that. And the speed of light is a constant. So we're talking about very basic problems for the upper limits of what a totally naturalistic being could achieve. And if we begin to monkey around with nature to say, well, let's just say that this kind of faster-than-light travel is possible so that God could go through a wormhole, like on Star Wars, it doesn't take very long to get somewhere, or you can just pass from one wormhole to another and immediately be where you want to be, then God could be present to stop all kinds of things that occur. And certainly, if he merely had the power of a normal human being and were present when Rachel Runyon were being abducted, he could have stopped it. Because if a human being were present with the natural powers of a grown adult, they probably could have stopped it if they knew what was going on. And so the virtue of this view, the great virtue of this view, that it dissolves the problem of evil, comes back through the back door. I'll just read this because it kind of sums that up. So you say, another thing is that if you, you know, kind of taken from the Book of Abraham where God finds himself in the midst of intelligences and sees fit to institute laws or whatever, you say that the Mormon finitism model assumes that the physical universe is infinitely old, you know, because of infinitely existing intelligences, but as far you know, as, at least as we understand, our particular universe or pocket universe appears to have had a beginning as a space-time manifold. So, you know, there's a Big Bang, meaning the universe as we know it began about that time. So there could not be an eternally old, physically complex being in such a local universe. So L would have to stand, if you will, outside of the physical space-time matrix that defines our own pocket universe. But then... How does he get back into it or communicate with it, let alone evolve to become a fully divine being within its space-time matrix? So, you know, you can address this on your view, but, I mean, I see this as kind of a problem for any view that believes in the eternally existing intelligences. So why is that particularly a problem for this one? And without fully getting into your theodicy, how would, it, how would any Mormon view get out of this? Well, I'm not sure a Mormon view 
gets out of this if you posit that there are material eternally existing intelligences that are subject to natural laws as we think of them so that they are after the universe. That is, if our pocket universe has existed for a finite amount of time and intelligences are stuck within the pocket universe, then they can't be eternal. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. So we would have to have a notion of intelligences that allows them to be extra-dimensional and therefore not fully subject to the natural laws that we're speaking about. We would need to say that God himself, either A, the manifestation of the properties of natural laws exhibited by natural regularities and the kind of natural objects that exist in the universe, that the way they manifest and whether they manifest their powers is up to God, but that would take us into a different view the view that I've elucidated in three volumes so far. So a part of why I come up with the theodicy that I do, which we're going to discuss later, and one of the reasons I've laid out this view is that it is actually tenable. It's logically tenable, and it is physically tenable given the natural universe as we know it. So we're going to have to find a way to make it so that God isn't simply after the material universe and stuck within it, or the very notion of an eternally existing being or eternally existing intelligences becomes really impossible to make sense of, in my view. So we're going to have to have something that isn't merely a naturalistic view. Okay, so, and again, back to what I was saying about my critique. Like I said, so, with the story that we read at the beginning, I think that's, you know, maybe not your view, but by and large, the story that I read at the beginning is kind of the way that Mormons view how God became God, whether, you know, maybe sans the language about the natural part. So this is definitely one strain that you can go and that has been seized upon, like you said, by John Woodso and, like I said, transhumanists or even, you know, a certain branch of what you call finitism. But... Would you agree that you don't have to go this direction just if God came to be God? Or is this something that you feel is entailed in this great chain of divine beings? You know, one God had a generation and brought other beings up to the level of God, and then they had more beings go down, and then they... I mean, I, I just I see this as one way you could take that, and maybe that's the well, view I you're choosing logical, to critique. Well, I think the logical entailments that I've laid out are inherent in any view where God is after the universe. That is, God is subject to the laws of the natural universe. Whether the natural laws exist and what they are is not subject to God. He has to mold himself to them. And the universe is the universe in which we exist and what we know about it. So it can't possibly be the case that given the kind of universe in which we exist, where the natural universe as we know it had essentially a beginning unless God could squeeze through a singularity in some way, and maybe there is some way, it's just possible that on this view, there is some kind of technology that would allow God to move in and out of space-time as we know it. Would you have to call it technology, or could you just say some method that he could have learned about? I, I mean, I guess you could call it technology, but like when you say that, it just evokes like you know a literal sci-fi God where God's like, oh, I'm going to get my spaceship and go create a planet with this science kit. I don't know, kind of like if you ever saw the movie Prometheus, I think this you're kind of picturing God as that. Like, this alien advanced race that has advanced over eons of time to become so advanced that they seem like gods to us, but they're just another adva more advanced race, and they just you know can come and biologically create worlds and and start life on a planet. Not that way. The way I've defined it, the way I've expanded this with my thought experiment, which I think is a real possibility on this view, God has all the knowledge that is possible for being living in an, in a naturalistic universe to have. Because, you know, the minds of all the gods are available to each of the gods. God has all the power that it's possible to have within a naturalistic universe because anything that can be done by the expenditure of energy can be done by the gods. And, and that's a lot. It's a vast amount of power. And, and let me say, you know, this kind of a... Uh, I would urge people who are interested in this kind of a view. There was a book published, Parallels and Convergences. And it has a number of Mormon transhumanists, but more importantly, also a number of Mormon physicists and scientists. And they generally elucidate this kind of view of God and play around with the possibilities. I had a correspondence with Scott Howe. Scott Howe is a, is a leading physicist. He's a top Mormon thinker, and he would be one of the leading physicists in the United States. And, you know, when I raise these problems, 
what he suggests is, yeah, there would have to be some kind of a way for God to move through wormholes. There may be a lot of things about the natural universe that we don't know. And so the gods come to us and they tell us, look, it's possible that we're eternal because of the nature of the dimensionality. Assume that string theory is true and that there are 11 dimensions. Most of them are microscopic, so they're not going to be very helpful. But let's assume that the gods know of a dimension in which they can exist that isn't subject to the same space-time continuum that we're in, where they can be in relation to the material universe, but they're not subject to it. As I said, this kind of a view makes it possible for gods to exist in that kind of universe, even if it's totally naturalistic. On the other hand, if your explanation for the reason that evils occur is that God just doesn't have the power and knowledge to, to overcome them, once we start expanding the natural universe for these kinds of possibilities, we're going to have to give up the notion that that's the reason that evils occur. We're going to have to have a supplemental theodicy about God's reasons for allowing them to occur. And so we're going to supplement it now with the soul-building and free-will theodicies, okay? It'll be the full purposes of God. And so we'll expand this view with the full purposes of God kind of a view, where God is saying, yeah, we could stop these kind of things, but we have reasons for allowing human freedom to be manifest. There are lots of different ways to manipulate the natural laws. I mean, anybody who's seen a jet rise into the sky, you know, if you told a person 150 years ago, yeah, that thing is rising on the sky, riding on air, because the air underneath the wing is faster than the air above it, and it weighs 40 tons. I think they would look at you and say, you are just as crazy as a person could possibly be. We're talking about that kind of a thing, right? Where without understanding what the natural laws are that allow us to do things, there's so much more possible than we could possibly imagine. But then we're going to say that the problem of evil comes in through the back door and we're going to need some kind of supplementary theodicy other than just this naturalistic view of God. In other words, the problem of evil is no longer dissolved. We now have to explain why these beings allow evil to occur, given the fact that they could stop it. Uh, yeah, I mean, just as far as not critiquing, but just kind of like my ideas, I mean, just since you haven't elucidated this elsewhere, I would say maybe you would want to, I don't know how you're developing the book, but because it seems like these are kind of two different subjects. There's God's relation to the natural universe, and then there's the implications of that for the problem of evil. You're right about that. They're two different subjects, but they're both problematic. I mean, if we stick what we know about the natural universe and the laws that exist, it's problematic to explain how God could exist within that kind of universe eternally with eternal intelligences. There's a lot of explaining to do there, but the great virtue of, of this point of view is, is that it dissolves the problem of evil. And what I want to say is, well, it's not going to be much to inspire religious faith. And if we modify it so that we begin to go into flights of scientific fiction fantasy so that we can deal with it, then we bring the problem of evil back in through the back door. Yeah, and it doesn't do anything to solve that. I'll agree with you there. So that's pretty much that view. But let me, and again, this might just be an appendix, and we could have talk about this at any point, but I just think this might be an, a good point to talk about it. I'm not like giving away your theodicy, but we know we've talked about your view at length that God was God from all eternity, and that's how he relates to the universe, whereas, you know, the universe means possibly all that exists as opposed to this particular universe. So on the same view, other than what I would call an aesthetic choice, what difference is there between an eternally backwards existing one god and an eternally existing backwards many gods is there any advantage other than just a personal choice that you've made or like if gods kept going backwards there's always a god on this view as well and there's always something in the universe i just don't see where the advantage of your particular view would be on that one point there would be three large advantages what I'm understanding, you're saying, let's do away with the assumption that God is after the universe. Let's put God in the kind of universe you do and have the gods relate to the natural universe the way that you suggest in your theodicy. So that the expression of natural laws is subject to their power, right? And you're saying, well, given that, are there any advantages to your view over and above? Because we could place the gods in your universe and solve the problem, I think is what you're saying. Kind of, yeah. And so the big advantage would be scriptural. Look, the reason we accept what the scriptures tell us is that God knows a lot more than we do. And the scriptures contain revelations from God which disclose divine knowledge about God and the way he is in his relation to the universe. 
And so the reason we have the beliefs that we do is that it would be foolish to doubt God when he tells us about himself. And he may be adapting himself to our language, but given where we are, it's the best we can understand. And so we would be foolish to reject that. The view that there are many gods like this would be radically contra-scriptural. And so what I'm suggesting is the very reasons for accepting belief. You know, I've argued at length for what the lectures on faith say. We don't believe in God because there are rational proofs of God's existence. In other words, I don't believe the cosmological argument proves it, the ontological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument. None of those arguments, in my view, are even remotely sound to prove God's existence. We believe in God because he's disclosed himself to us. And we know what we know about God because he's disclosed about himself what he has disclosed. And what he hasn't disclosed, we don't know. And so our knowledge about God is limited, but we have a reason to believe what he's disclosed because he loves us. He doesn't lie because he loves us. We can trust him. He's not misleading us. And we can trust him to know the truth because he knows everything that that is knowable. And so we would be foolish not to believe him when he tells us the way things are. Now, it may be that the way he would explain things to us when we're three years old is different than the way he would explain things to us when we're a grown adult, because we can understand so much more. So it may be that after Revelation, and we've had a chance to fully understand the, the world that he's disclosed to us, maybe he discloses more because he says, you know, given the platform where you are with what I've disclosed, you're now ready to have more disclosed to you because you can understand it even more. Or maybe I'll enlighten your mind so much that you can begin to see from a different perspective than the limited perspective you have, but you won't be able to convey it to those who have merely limited perspective. It will be beyond words for those people, but there will be other people who are spiritually enlightened, and you can disclose the truth for those who are spiritually enlightened, and those who have eyes to see will see, and ears to hear will hear, and those who don't won't. They won't get it. And so what we're talking about is the huge advantage of the view that I'm presenting is that we have good reason to believe it if we believe that the revelations actually come from God. We don't have good reason to merely believe Brigham Young's speculations about the way that, you know, the gods relate to one another. Well, you, unless you Brigham view Young Brigham Young as a prophet receiving that revelation from God, I mean, that's the view you're up against. <laughs> well, not really, because he hasn't given us any revelation where that view is disclosed. If he gets up and says, everything I say is, is received by revelation, I think we have good reason to doubt that, especially from Brigham Young. But he hasn't given us a revelation that we accept as a community as foundational for our beliefs by common consent. Now, and let me just point this out. I think it's important to say. They've recently changed the name of the church, popularly known as the Mormons, to say we don't want to be called Mormons anymore. We're the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I hear people all the time say, well, that means it's Jesus' church. He belongs to him. He's the head of it, and it's Jesus' church. But they're forgetting one of the most important parts of that name, the Church of Jesus Christ, yes, his, of Latter-day Saints. And why did he include that? It's because it's our church, too. We are bound by what we accept by common consent. This is a very important feature of the belief of the, of the Latter-day Saints, of the Restoration. It's our church, too. We get to adopt what we accept as foundational for our beliefs and the kind of system that we'll be governed by. And if we refuse to accept it, God won't, won't give us greater light and knowledge, but he'll give us what we're willing to accept. And so this isn't just Jesus' church. It's our church. <laughs> we belong to it. We own it in connection with him because we're one with him. That's the goal. And so I guess what I want to say is this kind of a view, it has some merits. But I think when they're closely scrutinized, they begin to fall apart and begin to look rather unlikely in light of the way we know the physical universe actually is. And even more when we ask, well, why would I accept that point of view? And well, if you accept that Joseph Smith taught it in the King Follett Discourse in the Sermon on in the Grove, and that what he's doing is saying, look, I'm going to give you knowledge that I've received in a revelation, and it's more than you've received before, but you're now, for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, you can see and hear, but it will be beyond the revelations that I've actually received. But that's not what he claimed to be doing in the very discourse. He claimed to be exploring and revealing what was inherent in the scriptures themselves and in the revelations he'd already received. He's not saying I'm going beyond them. He's saying I'm exploring those and explaining them to you. And that's why I elucidate the view that I do, that I'm looking for something that makes as a hermeneutic, the most sense of Joseph Smith's revelations and what he said 
I happen to believe that the hermeneutic I give of the King Follett Discourse and the Sermon in the Grove is the most persuasive, best reading of those sources. Any other reading comes up with huge problems and has a lot to explain. But then maybe it's just, well, any reading has that kind of a problem. That may well be the case. But I think that the reading I've given is one that makes most sense, especially in light of the kinds of things that were stated in the Revelations and his understanding of the counsel of gods and his understanding of the way that we relate to God in, in unity. So this kind of a view, yes, it has the merit. Brigham Young taught it. Certainly it's kind of the, uh, I would call it the Mormonism 2.0. Most Mormons don't see that this is actually what's entailed in the kind of teachings that are usually attributed to Joseph Smith and that were popularized by Brigham Young. But then they get there and realize, oh, this is very different. This is exciting. This is an exciting view. But then when it gets scrutinized, they're going to have to move on to Mormonism 3.0. And so this is a view that, you know, I don't want to destroy this view. There are a lot of Mormons, I think, who hold this kind of a view. But I think that they've got to realize that it logically entails that we're going to have to say that there's so much that we don't know that the way we think the natural universe works ain't the way it actually works. There are a lot of possibilities that scientists say really aren't possible and, in fact, are possible. And we're going to have to say that this is not really the full explanation for the problem of evil. We're going to have to come up with some kind of supplementary theodicy to explain evil. And I think that's the bottom line for people who accept this point of view. So to kind of sum up, I think the biggest problem that this view has is that it cannot deliver to us the kind of being in whom we can have ultimate faith, the kind of faith that's demanded in the scriptures where we devote everything, heart, mind, soul, and strength to God, and that we have ultimate trust in him. And here's why. Just taking lectures on faith as a, as a jumping off point, the lectures on faith say that in order to have faith, we have to believe that there is a God who has the power to overcome all enemies that may seek to destroy our salvation. And it may be that if we were wiped out of existence, that our salvation would certainly be destroyed. On this view, if the natural laws are what is ultimate rather than God, then assume that the constant is such that the universe will begin to contract again and that it will again collapse on itself, which is one of the ways that the, the universe could end. God wouldn't have enough power to stop that because ultimately what is ultimately most powerful will be the law of gravity. And God will be crushed, and we will be crushed in the Big Crunch. That's, that's called the Big Crunch view. Let's assume that the constant is such that the universe will just continue to expand. That's called the Big Whimper view, because ultimately, someday, we're going to run out of energy, and we won't be able to expend any energy at all, which means life and all, every, every kind of movement and motion would be impossible. So on that view, we die a heat death, and God can't stop that, because what's ultimately most powerful on that view is the law of entropy. And let's say, you know, the, the constant just happens to be. It's just a given that by sheer luck that the universe is kind of in a stasis. It expands to a certain point. It doesn't keep expanding, but the constants of gravity aren't such that it will collapse on itself. Well, then God is just very lucky, and the fact that we are saved from that kind of a death is just a matter of luck and not a matter of God's salvific efforts or power. <laughs> I don't see how we really praise God for that kind of a result. You know, we don't praise people for not doing something that they couldn't possibly do, but it just happens to turn out that way. You know, for instance, we don't praise people because they were born with genes that make them six foot two. We may wish we were six foot two instead of five foot ten, but we don't praise people because they've morally achieved six foot two. So I think the biggest problem with this view is it's difficult to see how we have the kind of ultimate faith in this being that could deliver us from all forces in the universe that could destroy us. And I think the problem of prayer, you know, if, if we assume that the speed of light is the highest speed that can be reached, the problem of prayer is obviously decisive. And so we'd have to begin to go outside of what we, we know is physically possible, given the present knowledge that we have. But that's okay. On this view, it would be okay to say, well, because God has revealed to us that, that that's a possibility, and he knows a lot more about the natural laws that we do, then we're going to accept that that's the case. You know, I don't want to short sell this view. It, it has all kinds of resources to address issues, but we're going to have to get into fantasies and flights of science fiction rather than revelation and the kind of things that we usually ground faith in God on. We're going to have to get into simple flights of speculative fantasy. So next time we're going to continue and talk about a Mormon process theodicy. And, you know, we hinted at that a little bit in this episode, but we'll flesh out a full Mormon process the odyssey next time 
Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.